to The Forbes Factor, featuring celebrity TV host, million-dollar entrepreneur, and renowned health and fitness superstar, Forbes Riley. A familiar face from TV, as well as one of today's most sought-after female motivational speakers today. You'll connect with some of the top experts in health and fitness, business and personal development, as well as some surprise celebrities, all sharing their insight, tips and tricks to finding true happiness. Now, here's your host, Forbes Riley. Well, hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Forbes Factor. We focus on health, wealth, and happiness. Today, I've got a very special guest. I'm also broadcasting from a very special studio. I'm here in Provo, Utah, and I'm at an event with a dear friend of mine named Chris Crone. He is the real estate, <laughs> come here for a second. He's the real estate guru. And I asked the crew, do you have a picture of Chris lying around? Now you can't see this if you're, just, if you're just listening to me, but this is in fact a picture of Chris Crone lying around. That's very funny, guys. I'm, I'm gonna have to move to Utah. I love the crew here, the staff. Chris is in the other room with 500 people live right now. And he graciously said, you can just use my podcast studio. If you check him out on YouTube, he's got over 6 million views on his video. I hang out with some good people. He also has his own private jet here. And he just came back with him and his wife. And this is crazy. They went over to the Ukraine. Yeah, most people are flying out and evacuating. He and his team flew in. And you're going to hear more and more about that because I happen to be Ukrainian. Both sides of my family, my grandparents were both born in Kiev and Odessa. I had planned to get there, uh, and then somebody decided to declare war on my motherland. So he went there, and I'm, I, it's, I'm, I'm so glad he's safe and returned. And when you hear the stories of they work with orphans, they work with displaced people, what they did was extraordinary. And I'm very proud to be his, his new friend. We recently met each other at an event and became very fast friends. I was just at his home, meeting his family. And one of the things that you have to understand about Chris is like literally, again, come to Facebook so you can see what I'm talking about, but I'm gonna flash $100 bills here. They're everywhere. He gives them out like candy. So you just walk in here, you want a $100 bill? No, this one says in props, it's not real. Oh, maybe it is, he lied to me. All right, I've got a very special guest today and we're gonna talk about the word resilience. You know, I think if you look up resilience, you find my photo. Yeah, resilience means bouncing back from horrific, catastrophic events and going on to live your life. And I was just talking about that one of the things that Chris is powerful about doing, as I am, is we're both in the traumatic healing space. Uh, I heard a very powerful story a young man was telling me a minute ago about someone who came to Chris who had run over his son on a snowmobile and killed him accidentally and his life was falling apart. And how getting to a breakthrough not only saved his life, but allowed him to move forward. I've personally done a lot of those. Uh, people who have killed people uh, in war or otherwise. Uh, one of the most traumatic ones for me was a young girl who man had killed her brother and how to get past that. And she was so stuck for many years. We went through a process. And I have to say, you never get over. That's not really a good way to say. I, mean, I raised a little boy who was murdered. You never get over it but you get through it. And again, I'm going to talk to my guest, Miss Taryn Marie, and she's going to tell me how she pronounces her last name because it's got a lot of, lot of letters in it. That <laughs> and the point is, I can talk about my son who I raised for 12 years and who was murdered and not break down. And then there are times when I only break down. So I'm excited to hear about her new book called The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. I think we all need to learn a level of resilience in order to deal with the world, relationships, what happens to us, 
Because if life is not good and fun, you, why are we here, you know? And I would like all of us to find those reasons. So will you please put a big round of applause and welcome to the stage, Ms. Taryn Marie. Taryn, come to the stage if you would. And let me see if I need to change the setting so I can see you differently and go to gallery. And there you are. Hello, hello, hello. Here I am. Here I am. Thank you for having me. What an honor and a pleasure to be here. Oh, my gosh. Well, do me a favor. Please pronounce your last name the right way. Absolutely. So my uh, my my last name comes from the Czech Republic. So just, you know, a hop, skip and a jump away from Ukraine, Ukraine over in, in Eastern Europe. And it's stay skull, like you're telling a dog to stay and the skull around your brain. However, she pronounced it's just so you know, it's not just me. S-T-E-J-S-K-A-L. And I'm glad that you, so stay skull sounds fine. And it's a beautiful name. Is it your maiden name, married name? It is. It's it's uh, it's my maiden name, or I like to say my family name, just because maiden can sometimes seem a little outdated in in this uh, in this day and age. It's the, it's the name I was born with. I agree. I agree. Well, you have a powerful story yourself, and you know you are partners with a very very dear friend of mine. I have known our mutual friend Michael Alden forever just forever. We started in the infomercial business together. We've had a lot of success together. He's a voice of reason and a dear friend. And I love that he introduced us. And I love that you've got a book that is titled The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. How did, let's go back a little bit about Terrence's history. How did you get to this point? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. So, you know, I think I was really interested in how we as people, as you said, Forbes, effectively move through these inevitable moments of challenge. And so part of my story is having a stalker show up in my life at age 14, looking in through the window, watching me get dressed in the morning before school. We all hoped that it would sort of not materialize into anything substantial. And yet 10 months later, when my parents were out of town, he was back and his behavior continued to escalate over time. And what I didn't realize until, you know, probably a decade later when I was in graduate school and I read the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder was that I met all of the criteria for that diagnosis. And I, that stalker situation really took me on a journey toward understanding how was I as a young woman who was, you know, not equipped in maturity to really deal with what was happening how was I going to effectively move through this challenge for myself? And then as a result of speaking with hundreds of people and collecting thousands of pieces of data to create a framework that can help all of us do the same thing, knowing that challenge is an inevitable part of our life experience. Taryn, can you go back for a second? Do you remember what the parameters for post-traumatic stress syndrome are? Yes. Can you share them with me? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really long diagnosis and there's like three different parts and you need to have like two, you know, things from one part and at least one thing from another part, you know, and and that kind of thing. So, well, but, like, um, but like what? And I'll, there's a real reason I'm asking, but just off the top yeah. of your head, what would be a couple of things that somebody would really look for? Yeah, I can I can share I can share sort of my, you know, constellation of symptoms, if you will. I no longer meet the criteria, but I did for two decades. So the first kind of component is that it needs to, you know, fundamentally impact the way that you function in life, right? That there's a, a, a significant 
way that this experience has impacted you. So we can go through traumatic things and not necessarily be diagnosed with post-traumatic you know, stress, stress disorder, it's, you know, but the idea that that traumatic experience, you know, significantly impacts your life is sort of a precursor for all of it. You know, then it's having things like nightmares, uh, inability to concentrate, um, what they call hypervigilance, which is just a constant sense of like being on guard or a sense of anxiety or, you know, needing to connect or check your environment, uh, difficulty trusting people, difficulty being alone. Uh, there are visual and auditory hallucinations. So seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there. So for me, the way that that would manifest itself is like if I was home alone as a young woman, I might think that I heard footsteps on the stairway. Or if there were a bunch of coats hanging on a rack, I may out of the corner of my eye think that there's someone standing there. And then when I sort of startle and look again, I see the, I see the coats. So what happens is it's a very normative response to trauma in which our mind and our body is sort of on overdrive trying to keep us safe. Well, it's fascinating because I have a lot of those incidences and I don't think I've ever been technically had a conversation about this. Dating back to when I was 15, my mother was held up at the house at gunpoint uh, and they stole all of our jewelry along with a lot of other things. They traumatized her. I know that she suffered forever and never got help. And I, the way it manifested was isolation, overweight, uh, ended up being diabetic and gone by the time she was 70 because never thought to, and I, it was not part of our culture that you would go and ever talk about those things. Uh, and then my dad was in a horrific accident, spent three years in the hospital. I now use my speaking platform. I just gave a speech and it... Oh, it was exactly what I talked about. And I do think as I'm hearing this thinking, you know, I never got diagnosed for any of those things. I certainly have some crazy quirks that maybe were worthy of a conversation and then lost a little boy that I raised to murder. He was killed. And then was an eyewitness at the Las Vegas shooting, like really eyewitness. And that particular one almost killed me. And I do know mm -hmm. that I got through that because of some amazing people because physically it manifested that I was not eating and you can't get on planes and work if you have no magnesium in your system, your heart just stops. And I came dangerously close to that because of that. So now we just went through my laundry list of PTSD, explains a lot. What if somebody listening has those symptoms or have been through something traumatic, what do they do? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, you know, a lot of times we think that people should talk about their experience. But in fact, people talking about their experience can re-traumatize them, right? Ooh. So, you know, what you want to do is connect with someone who conducts, you know, therapy or workshops or clinical work or coaching that I would say is trauma-informed. So someone who has credentials to know what and how to ask questions, when to back off, because simply recounting your experience is telling the story over and over again doesn't necessarily move you forward. And in fact, it might re-traumatize you. Wow. Well, so I, it fascinating to me because your trauma, I deal with a lot of traumatic healing, is on a certain scale. And then I'm thinking about people who went through really being violated physically that it is even, I don't know that a lot of people have had help for a lot of things that have gone happened to them. So what drove you to write about this? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I talk about is this idea that we all have resilience stories and not just one, but many resilient stories. 
And yet our resilience stories are often the stories that most need to be told, but are often the ones that we keep hidden. And so for me, this experience with a stalker and PTSD, this was one of those resilience stories that needed to be told and yet was one of the stories that I was very actively hiding because I was afraid how people were going to respond. So at this point, you know, I'm an executive at Cigna and Nike, and I'm sort of rapidly sort of climbing the ranks from manager to director to senior director to VP. And I thought, you know, if people know, you know, I call it the H word, right? If people know about hallucinations, right, which are completely normal when someone has experienced trauma, you know, this could discredit, you know, who who I am and all of the hard work that I've put in, you know, to building my career. And yet, as I was learning about resilience, what I found is that the people that told their resilience stories to people in their lives that were supportive, to people that had earned the right to hear those stories and, and to bear witness, you know, these were the ones who engaged in vulnerability as the first practice of highly resilient people who demonstrated some of the greatest resilience. And yet we're all not running around living our most fabulous, vulnerable lives typically. And, and why not, right? I, wa I wanted to ask that question. If we know vulnerability is good for us, why aren't we doing it? And the answer is the vulnerability bias. And what the vulnerability bias is like a voice in our head, a hardwired kind of cognition that just at the moment when we think about sharing our resilience stories, it says, nope, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. If you tell someone that story, the three L's will occur. People won't like you, they won't love you, and they might leave, right? The three L's. And that's a powerful prohibition against stepping out in this sort of, you know, expansive and courageous state of vulnerability. So what I did, Forbes, is I thought, you know what, I'm going to become my own case study, right? And what that means is I'm going to get up on stage. I'm going to tell my resilience story about the stalker and the PTSD in service of sharing this idea, this concept of resilience. And one of two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to completely discredit myself and I'll know that the vulnerability bias is real and I should have stayed quiet, or I'm going to create more opportunities, more connection, more appreciation for what I've been through. And I'll know that the vulnerability bias, you know, is in fact untrue. And when I got up on stage and began sharing my story after I'd done my own healing process, and that's important, right? We don't want to get up on stage in front of a lot of people and start telling a very significant or traumatic story until we've done our own healing work. So I'd done my own healing work. I got up on stage and of course, it led to a standing ovation and wow. people asking me to speak and share about my story and about, about resilience all over the world. And so, you know, it's really sort of a win-win because now I get to share, you know, the vulnerability bias is faulty. There is an opportunity to create greater connection through vulnerability. And it's about having the courage to allow ourselves to be seen, but typically not starting on a stage. We want to start with people that have earned the right to hear our vulnerability stories. I love how you talk. It's very smart. It's very um, specific. And I've not heard this conversation before because I think everyone needs to hear this. By the way, we are being followed by a lot of my friends and fans and a lot of people on Facebook. So if you guys have any questions, feel free to be up, you know, just jump up here. 
So you decided to put this into a book. By the way, so you said you worked at Nike. I just saw Air last night. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. So what did you, I'm sorry, I'm going to totally go off for a second because I loved it. I loved the story behind the story and watching Matt Damon mm -hmm. deliver a speech that was just so empowering. I took away a sense of self-worth that I've been listening to all day in my head about how, and by the way, Michael Jordan is my husband's favorite. Just, I've watched the stories, I've watched basketball games over and over again, uh, watched the documentary, and my husband is a world champion bodybuilder and high jump champ, and now I see why, because one of his role models was that extraordinary. I missed it. I know Michael was playing when I was growing up, but I missed it all. And now to see it, it's like, ooh, this is interesting. Uh, so what did you do at Nike? So at Nike, I was our head of executive leadership development and talent strategy. So basically, I was connected to our C-suite and our uh, many of our uh, athlete partners. So I worked with them on their resilience, their leadership, their cohesion, their communication. And then my team and I looked after the top, excuse me, the top 400 vice presidents within the organization around their advancement, mobility, assessment of their skills. Now, wait a second. Those okay, types of see, I haven't worked in corporate world. So what you just said is so foreign to me. And I'm yeah. thinking that as entrepreneurs, I think I would like you to do that for entrepreneurs who are CEOs. What exactly does that mean that you do? And forgive me for being naive about this. No, it's not naive. It's not naive at all. The, the corporate world and the entrepreneurial world are oftentimes, you know, two, two islands very far across the ocean from one another. And I've been in both. So I have this sort of opportunity to be bilingual and talk about both experiences. So inside of corporations, there's this, there's this idea of uh, leadership development, uh, talent management, and talent strategy. When we talk about talent, we're not talking necessarily about celebrities. We're talking about the people that are contributing to the organization in which we work. And so talent and leadership development is all about how are we developing people in their roles and for their next opportunity? How are we accelerating our high potentials? Who are the people that really have a lot of promise or high performance inside the organization? So it's really focused on assessment of leadership skill, uh, knowing what motivates and drives people and also their challenges where they might get into trouble. It's about finding fits and opportunities for mobility and advancement. And it's about coaching them to um, enhance their performance, to reach more potential, and to have the skills, knowledge, abilities, and experiences to be ready for new assignments that might be sort of outside of their uh, level of experience or wheelhouse in the future. Have you put this training together for us solopreneurs over here? Absolutely. I'd be glad to. In fact, I work with a lot of venture capital companies to be able to do assessment and coaching for entrepreneurs and for founders. So it's absolutely something that um, has the ability to be translated, I think, into our into our work and, you know, kind of broadly into the oh, entrepreneurial yeah. we're gonna field. A, we're going to have a conversation after this because I'm here in Utah right now with a very powerful gentleman named Chris Crone. And just fascinating, uh, mega million dollar status, has his own private jet kind of guy. And he's teaching wealth management and real estate and leadership. And we're talking, I'm here with my CEO because we identified that we need a little help in this area about growing our company and understanding what, what, what seats there are on the bus. You know, and this goes to all my entrepreneurs. A lot of this shows by watched primarily by entrepreneurs and people who want to venture into business or starting their, their journey. And what's fascinating is that when you get to a level of success, 
you have to bring some more people on because you can only go so far by yourself. And if you've never worked in corporate, and I, I, this is going to sound, talk about naive. I didn't know what the word CEO or the letters stood for until I was in my mid thirties because I'd never been exposed. I come from a blue collar family. You know, we knew mechanics and dentists and doctors. There were no CEOs. There were just people living their lives. And it took me a long time to figure out the understanding of this. And having never worked for a corporation, what you're saying, I can see, but I'm like, hmm, that is so needed for the work that we do and bringing on new corporate members. You know, we are now, we need COOs and CFOs, like oh, all these C-suite people. So I'm going to tap your, your expertise beyond just resilience and see if we can help either create that just for my team or, but maybe something that is, you know, that's one of the things that we do. We create courses, we train, we've got over 18,000 students in the last two years. And I love what we do, but uh, two and two could equal five. Just absolutely. I love that math. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? So you, how long do you take you to write your book? You know, that's a great question. I think it depends on sort of how you're thinking about that, right? So I conducted the research for 20 years. So you could say two decades. A lot of people want to know, though, you know, how long did it take me to, you know, find an agent, right? Answer, three years. I went through three different agents till I got my third one. There's a lot of bouncing around, I think, that occurs in in the literary um, industry. And so it was far from a straight line from doing the research to creating my book proposal to finding the right agent to finding the right publisher. And then um, writing the book, I probably had, um, you know, maybe 40% of the book done. So then it took me about another year to finish the, the content and to go through edits. That is fascinating. That's not really what I meant in terms of writing it, but that's a fascinating subject. As I have now written many books and have a lot of different publishers and, and people always talk about self-publishing versus, did you go to a real publisher? Did you go to that route where they sit with you for a year and a half by the time you get your book out or a hybrid? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say real publisher for people in the audience who you know, are in various about, sort of facets. Let's, of let's say old world, it's like the big studio system. You can either make an independent movie that's probably better, or you can go to the mm -hmm. old guys like the Paramount and the Warner Brothers that have big systems. So I think that's what I, maybe traditional publishing house, which yeah. I, I, I went that route and it's a nightmare. So I was just curious what your experience was. Yeah, I, I went with a big, you know, traditional um, top three global publishing house. And, you know, people talk about writing a book as being one of the hardest things that they've ever done. And I thought, you know, like everything I've been through and, you know, I hear your stories, right? I'm like, this is not going to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. Let's just be clear. And it was very hard. And the and it wasn't the writing of the book, though. It was the the process of having it vetted by so many people and having edits. And it's beautiful to have a team um, come around me and be supportive. And also in the writing process, that can be very daunting. It can take a lot of time to sort of get the manuscript through all of the checks and balances. Yes. I, yes, yes. And yes. So yep. if someone has an idea, would you recommend that they do that route? You know, I, I think a lot of times we say, gosh, you know, I went through this hard thing or I learned this important lesson. I'm going to write a book. And I, I think that's a really exciting thing to do. It's also a really hard thing to do. And it's not just about writing the book. I think it's about people, you know, if, okay, so if that is you, right, if you're out in the audience saying like, I am thinking about writing a book 
I think what you get to think about is what is the impact that you are trying to make and what is the story that you want to tell? And so, and then what are the results that you want to sort of create in the world? And then think about once you write those things down, right? Like impact, what's the story and what are the results? Then I think you get to ask yourself, is the book the right vehicle to do that? Because it's going to take a significant amount of time, energy, depending on the type of publishing, financial investment. And it's really hard to sell books. You know, you, I, I naively thought like, yeah, here's my book. You know, it's like, you know, $29, you know, don't you want to buy it? You know, and it's really difficult to get people to buy books. And so there's many, many ways I think that we can make an impact, create results, tell our story, and it doesn't necessarily have to be through a book. So are you now taking this as a platform to speak or how do you earn a living at the moment? Yeah. So um, fortunately, I had a lot of uh, corporate clients and speaking engagements prior to the book. And so the book is meant to amplify those opportunities. And then also, you know, when we speak to audiences, to organizations, there's always this thought that like, yes, it's wonderful if you can get up on the stage for 20 or 45 or 60 minutes and inspire people. But how are we going to create long-term kind of behavior change and impact? And so by having the book going along with the speaking, I'm sure, as you know, it gives people an opportunity to interact with us and our content and to create change and transformation long after we leave the stage. Well, I gotta, I'm very excited. I've got some, I've got some off the wall questions when we come back that I don't think you're going to anticipate. Uh, kind of oh, goodness. I know, right? <laughs> uh, we're going to take our very first break here, guys. You're listening to the Forbes Factor. We focus on health, wealth, and happiness. We have just relaunched on the Variety Channel, and I will tell you our audience has grown. It's a very exciting platform, and I love having my guest here. But when we come back, oh, she's not going to be ready for this. This is totally Forbes Riley style. I know. Um, and you know what? We're talking about bounce back resilience. And just we have got 30 seconds. What's one takeaway that people should, if they're struggling right now, what's one key to resilience, do you think? Yeah. Well, let's just build on bounce back. Bounce back is a myth. We never go back to the way that we were before a challenge. And so many people you know, don't think they've been resilient because they've been changed. So we get to think about rather than bouncing back, bouncing forward and allowing yep. ourselves to be changed by the experience. I love the idea, guys. We're bouncing forward right now into a first commercial break. When we come back, we're going to find out more about the beautiful, and if you're not watching the video, you don't know what I'm talking about, Miss Tara Marie Stayskill. Yes? Good? All right. Nailed it. <laughs> don't go away. We'll be right back after this break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you hate going to the gym but want to shed that extra weight, finally get a flat stomach and tight toned arms, we have the most unique solution. And get this, it's fun and takes less than five minutes, two times a day. Developed by Fitness Hall of Fame inductee and TV health expert Forbes Riley. The Spin Gym is the most compact, low-impact, resistance exercise ever developed. This simple handheld device provides the most unique fat-burning, metabolic-boosting workout suitable for all fitness levels. You've seen it on TV and in print with more than 2 million sold. What are you waiting for? Get your Forbes Riley Spin Gym at buyspingym.com. 
Order now and discover how easy and fun it can be to get in the very best shape of your life in just five minutes. Guaranteed. There's never been another product like the Forbes Riley Spin Gym. So try it risk-free for 30 days. Visit buyspingym.com today. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Forbes Factor. To call in with a question or comment, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Forbes at ForbesRiley.com. Now, back to the show. Here's Forbes Riley. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Forbes Factor. This is an amazing conversation about resilience, about learning to not bounce back, but to bounce forward. I'm here with Dr. Taryn Marie Stayskill. And I'm Dr. Forbes Riley, and we're going doctor to doctor here about, I, feel, I hear a song here, doctor, doctor, give me the news. So I, I'm going to tell, if you watch the first or listen to the first part of this, this show, we've already got into the book that she's written called The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. We've talked about the concept about how corporations are different from an entrepreneur's leadership. And now I want to go in a totally frivolous, completely different direction. Would that be okay? Let's do it. I am looking at you, and you look like what I dreamed I wanted to look like when I was little. I am looking at a beautiful blonde woman with long, gorgeous hair, just a great, beautiful face, and you're talking about being in the corporate world. Has that been a help or a hindrance, do you think, in corporations? Mm, It's a great question. So I've been in academia, right, getting my getting my PhD and I was a a teaching professor for a period of time and also a researcher. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur and am an entrepreneur currently. And I've also been in the corporate world. So I feel like I'm trilingual in a sense. I would say in academia, I felt like how I look or looked absolutely discredited, discredited me. And in fact, I remember standing up in front of a group of people at an international uh, conference, and I was talking about an article that I had written, and what I, you know, what I had intended, you know, for this body of work to to contribute, and it wasn't clear to an audience member that I had written the article, and so that person raised their hand and they challenged me, and they said, "Well, how do you know what the authors meant?" and 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 you know, so much, you know, how can you assume that you know so much about the research design, right? And I said, "Because I'm the lead author, 
but that hadn't computed because I was both, I think in our world, sometimes it's difficult for some people to compute that we can be both attractive and intelligent. And so in the academic world, uh, there's very much a sense, like if you get too excited about something, if you're, if you're too enthusiastic, if you're too attractive, then you must not be a serious student or researcher. Um, in the corporate world, I would say, um, I would say it probably helped nor hindered me. Now I worked in some large corporations. I didn't spend time in Silicon Valley. I didn't spend time in a lot of corporations where, um, there wasn't, let's say like as strong an HR presence. And so I didn't have the experience of being, um, sexually harassed, um, of having people make comments. And, and if they had inside of the organizations where I worked, I felt like there was a really powerful, uh, opportunity for, for recourse. Um, as an entrepreneur, um, I think it can go both directions. I think sometimes it can discredit me. Sometimes it can, uh, sort of be a magnetic factor that also brings people to my message. And sometimes it's like what first captures people and then they hear what I'm saying. And there's also sort of this experience of being a woman. I'd be curious about, you know, your take on this where I also get, you know, what I'll call like some false positives, which are like men showing up in my life as like a legitimate buyer or someone who wants to legitimately work with me uh, inside of their corporation. And it becomes clear relatively early that they're really just interested in having a conversation with me or flirting with me. So I've come up with kind of a series of strategies to vet and weed people out and also to be really clear around my intentions. I think it's fascinating. I've been talking about this subject forever. I have a 20-year-old daughter who's got long blonde hair and she's beautiful. And I watch her deal with discredit, discreditation. Is that a word uh, of being too if, young? If to it be, isn't, it should be. If, yeah, discreditation. I like this word because she gets discredited all the time. I discredited her for the first five years of her career because she was 12, 13, 14, and 15. What could they possibly know except for this $100 bill that I'm holding in my hand right here? She came in and said, Mom, can I have one of these? I said, no, what do you want it for? She said, I want to buy a thing called Bitcoin. I said, I'm not buying a Bitcoin. What's a Bitcoin? No, we don't have $100. You're 15. Mom, can I have $500 for Bitcoin? I said, I'm not giving you $100. I'm not giving you $500. And then when it was $66,000, she said, Mom, you missed out on a pretty powerful investment. If you'd listen to me, I'm like, it sucked. But I'm thinking, how do I listen to a 15-year-old who knows that? Who knows that silly band is going to become the next sensation? And I finally did when she was 17 years old, start to listen to this young mind because I discredited her as well. I, I can't believe that I'm guilty of this, but it's, it, I wish I hadn't been. By the way, at 17, our first day in business together, we grossed 25,000. Our first month, we grossed 102,000. Our first six months was 1 million. Uh, the kid's genius and I didn't realize it because no one would let her experience that in school because you're not taught to do that on your own. And now she's 20 years old and a full-fledged CEO and no one takes her seriously, uh, which is fascinating to watch about how she's dealing with that. And so part of my mission as I just crossed over the sixth decade on this planet is I don't think I'm any anymore looked at as a sexual object, maybe by some, but that's not my issue anymore. But as moving women forward and points of view that I have, and it's like, you know, I was in a man's world my entire career. I was in the world of infomercials and no one wanted to hear from the girl in the room. I was the sidekick. I was meant to be seen and not heard. And I had a lot of opinions. And Kevin Harrington recently just came out to my defense and told my daughter in an interview when she said something, something about my mom I don't know. 
And he said, you know, your mom was put through the ringer and really pushed to a point where they thought they had one over on her. And she stood up against all odds and won. And it was a very male versus a female experience. And I never really viewed it as a problem. I just viewed it as kind of annoying. And then I realized I had to step back and go, wait, there's a thing. It's because I'm a woman. I'm not going to go play golf with the CEOs of those companies because their wives don't want that. Or you're not going to hang out late at the office because it doesn't look good. And as we're moving forward, I guess I would like to just ask you, there's a lot of young women who deserve to have more than a shot. I was one of the smartest people in any room. I graduated, I skipped a year of high school and graduated college with two degrees in three years. Yay for me, being smartest did not make you the most popular. And it made you annoying a lot of the time because you could see things other people didn't see. And when you were right, the people that you were so, I was so excited about being right, because I was, that they're like, we don't care if you're right, we don't, we don't care. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, we, we don't want you to be right. We just want to have our own opinions. I was like, that's kind of idiotic and that's the way the world is, isn't it? Oh, that's interesting. So I learned a lot of lessons way too long by trial and error. And one of the things I want to do now, that's why I asked you that question, is to see how do we facilitate and educate women and the men around them to have a more neutral conversation? Or do we ever, if you're too beautiful, will you ever get taken seriously? Mm -hmm. Thoughts? Yeah. So I have so many thoughts on this. Um, you know, first of all, I would say bias and unconscious bias and, and privilege relative to men and women, it is alive and well in our Western society and, and really across the globe, right? And there's this incredible, you know, if you don't believe me and you have an analytical mind, just go look at the pay gap between men and women. So that's a place, that's a place to start. I don't think the advancement of women, that that conversation is only a women's conversation. And in fact, I think we've made a mistake oftentimes by only inviting women into the room and by seeing men as the adversary or the enemy. So the conversation about the advancement of women, about pay equity, about social justice uh, is really for men and women. Social justice and equity amongst all people is a human conversation. It's not a gender, it's not a gender conversation. It's not a racial conversation. It's something for all of us to be deeply engaged in and to care about uh, deeply as, as humans. The next piece is, you know, we talk a lot about the role that men play and there's, there's truth in that. There's also a role that we play as women in terms of being competitive with one another and putting one another down. You know, Madeleine Albright said there's a special place in hell for women that don't help other women. And we have been socialized to believe that there can only be one seat at the table. And therefore, we as women oftentimes do ourselves, you know, as much, if not a greater disservice by being competitive with each other. So there's actually a chapter in my book, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People on Women in Leadership. And it talks about this beautiful theory that's not my own called shine theory and really shifting our mindset in the script that when we see a beautiful woman, when we see an accomplished woman, we see woman who like has done stuff and is smart, the tendency for many of us as women is to look at that person as our competition. And we get to flip that script and say, you know what, there's my next co-collaborator. Because when you take two stars and you put them next to each other, they don't get dimmer, they get brighter. My Facebook has just lit up with that conversation. And I so, so love that. I was recently given the opportunity and I'm very vocal about this, and I love that. I've been on a lot of professional stages because I'll look at the lineup and go, there's no women there. And they'll look at me going, okay, what time do you want to speak? 
Like, thank you, but, but I'm not the only one at the table. This happened to me recently at a company called Real Summits, and there was Deepak Chopra, Les Brown, um, Jack Canfield, and, some other, and Damon John, and I looked at that and said, where's the women? Where's my role model? Where's my daughter's role model is what I'm looking for. And they had the beautiful Sharon Lecter who co-wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that was pretty much it. The next day, I got invited to the table, and I've loved being there. I've been there for the last two years. Well, they came to me a couple of months ago and said, hey, would you host a women's summit? Which, again, I had this vibe going, okay, there's a couple of problems with this. Nobody goes to Tony Robbins and said, could you host a male summit? It just would never happen. And so why am I doing this? And then he said to me, we don't, it's a selling platform. People sell their products. I said, and he said, well, don't expect you guys to make that much money. And I'm thinking, oh my God, so now it's bad enough. You've put me in a corner. You don't think we're going to do very, you want to tell me I'm going to run like a girl too? And I couldn't wait to exhibit. By the way, we had one of the highest attendance, retention, and VIPs because women are different. When they do lean in together, we are freaking unstoppable. But uh, it's just, it's a fascinating conversation. I, do you have children, by the way? Oh, you do have children. You have a bunch of children, don't you? I do. I do have children. I have two sons. I have an 11 year old and a, uh, he'll be nine this weekend son. Oh. And mm-hmm. well, congratulations. I have a boy and a girl twin. And one of the greatest things this mom over here, I didn't grow up with any boys. Just that was, that's been the best. He's now 20 years old and in college and gives me the best hugs, by the way. Somebody misinformed me. They said, uh, when your boy is a certain age, like, oh, he's great when he's young, but the testosterone kicks in like 10, 12, you'll have to park down the street at school and he won't ever give you a hug in front of his friends. And I have these beautiful photos. This little boy has been hugging me. He's now six foot four, hugging me his entire life. I get the best hugs ever because I did not want to buy into social prejudice or what other people thought was right. And so we've created our own paradigm. So I just wish you that you get all the hugs that you deserve because boys are the best. They are. They are wonderful. They are absolutely incredible. Yeah. So what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, You know, I've really been, and this is sort of similar to the conversation that we were having at the break about how we in our lives sort of make sense of the trauma, the loss, the disappointment, the challenge, change, and complexity. And I don't believe that I can go into my life and and sort of surgically remove an experience and be the same person. And I also don't believe that I can sit here and talk to you today and love my life and love the man that I'm with and love the work that I'm doing and hate or dislike or not accept certain aspects of myself and experiences that I've had. So part of my healing journey has been one of integration, to make sense of, to heal, to make amends, to see these difficult experiences, you know, over time and through work and therapy and introspection as not this terrible thing that happened to me, but instead my greatest teachers and my greatest opportunities. Said more simply, these things get to make us better rather than making us bitter. And so, and I also know that there were really dark times of PTSD and having the stalker and, and not feeling looked after or cared for by my parents and feeling isolated. And so the advice that I would give to my younger self is to go back to her and say, it gets better. Keep going because it gets better. 
I love that Mo just picked up on that same phrase, better, not bitter. I love that. Although I could hear my Jewish grandmother going, oi, it's going to get better, not bitter. Don't worry. That's what she, <laughs> that's all I could hear when you said that. <laughs> hey, speaking of that beautiful man that you love, I put him on the poster. Will you invite Mr. Michael into the frame here or get him on his own computer? I would, I would be glad to. I would be delighted to invite yeah. Mr. Michael Alden into the frame. I'm going to scoot my chair over a little bit so he can join me on half the frame. How long have you here guys been, how long have you guys been together? Uh, about three months. Forbes, oh, look crazy, at that little face yeah. there. Congrats. Look, you guys are an adorable couple. All right. So Mr. Michael Alden, lawyer, entrepreneur, genius of many infomercials, and a very complex, interesting guy who likes saunas. It's a whole nother story. Michael, how are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? Yeah, I can see you're like glowing. <laughs> Well, Forbes, you're telling that story because people don't, people have heard this before, but Forbes and I did a bunch of infomercials together. One uh, particular infomercial we did, I was in a sauna for two days straight. We were on set. I basically passed out on set, and Forbes had to take over because I had no electrolytes and I had no uh, water in my system. So that's a little inside joke uh, about me and saunas I, because, because I was too heavy. Oh, and, uh, no, I this needed is to what lose you get weight. when you're an A personality. That's what you did. You I, And you're one of my – I love you. I love you. I think you're just extraordinary. So – even though you did pass Thanks. out and I got to do the show and whatever. So, well, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I, I was not worried about you taking over. So, well, thank you. Thank you. So you've listened to this conversation standing in the other side of the camera, the entire hour. What do you think of the conversation? I, uh, I started to tear up towards the end, you know, um, she's a, you know, when you talk about beauty, you look at her and you look at yourself as well. And, and I, this is why I knew you guys would just kill it together because, um, you know, with, with Taryn in particular, I know her story. I know who she is. And I, when we first met Forbes, um, a lot of people don't know this story, but within the first five minutes of a phone call between us, I didn't know what she looked like, nothing. I didn't really know anything about her. And I told her within five minutes that I have this overwhelming attraction and connection to her. And I had to tell her five minutes into a phone call, didn't know what she looked like, didn't know anything about her, didn't know the fact that she had a stalker, didn't know the fact that she's a TEDx speaker, that she's a PhD. I didn't know any of that stuff, but I just heard something in her voice that I just couldn't um, couldn't get enough of. And that was February 13th. And our and you know Ryan Blair. Ryan Blair actually introduced us. And that's how oh, wow. that's how it all started. Ryan's yeah. been on this yeah. show. Ryan so. is an Ryan is one of the first people on this planet who gave me a break with my spin gym and with his company, which he took to over a billion dollars and him and his two partners. And that was the beginning of one of my journeys. And I owe him a lot. I think he's extraordinary. And I love listening to his journey. I will tell you the coolest thing about having, being able to sit in this seat is to reconnect, inspire, take conversations in certain directions. I know Taryn, you may not have thought that that's where I was going to go with that, but I think being a very conscious woman, I'm listening to you be so smart and I can hear the education and I'm going to, I'm so guilty. Two nights ago, I went to a movie screening uh, with some celebrities and one of the celebrities' girlfriend, blonde, a little overbleached, very well endowed. I'm looking at her, and I have to say, I had a certain opinion that you draw, and you're allowed to because you only have the information you have. And then she starts to talk. And I guess I expected something different. Not only does she own 59 buildings in Los Angeles, but a self made multimillionaire and a whippersnapper. And I'm like, like, wow. And then her girlfriend looked the exact same way. And, and they're also a little older. And she's like, oh, well, I own this boutique, this, this. And I'm like, if I discounted you and I'm a pretty modern woman, what do other people, where do their heads go? You know? And are you allowed to be absolutely ravingly beautiful and smart at the same time? The answer I know is yes. 
but I just want to make sure that we keep hearing it and saying it to younger kids who, somebody wrote me here, she wrote, and she was in corporate, she said she had to dumb it down, and I'm tired of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Michael, obviously, you're not threatened by extraordinary beauty either, are you? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, when you look at her, when a lot of men look at her, we talk about this a lot, um, it, it is pretty intimidating, you know, for men. You know, she's, a, she's by the way, she's six feet tall, too. She's a six foot blonde, blue eyes, former Miss Teen Michigan. And, and you hear about all this stuff. And for I'm a pretty confident guy. You've known me for a long time. When you see someone like her, it is kind of intimidating. And then when you then you, you then you got a PhD behind it, then you have all these other things behind it. You're like, wow, you know. But when we first started talking, you know, we there's there's so much to her and there's so much that I can learn from her as well. And I'm not intimidated by that. You know, I think a lot of guys are in fact intimidated by that. I said to the story like a couple of days ago, look, I'm a lawyer, pretty well educated. I think I'm pretty smart, as we would say from Boston. But I said to her, I said, look, you're way smarter than me. She'll tell you I'm not. But it doesn't intimidate me because I know that I can learn from her. And she's taught me so much, Forbes, in, in a very short period of time. And I love it. I love listening to her and learning from her and just watching her speak. I mean, she's one of the greatest salespeople. I mean, you're amazing, too, by the way, billions of dollars worth of sales. But when I sit, sit there and listen to her speak and talk about things and in, in, in business and in life uh, and sales and training and psychology, I'm just blown away by the whole thing. And, 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 and it's even more attractive than the outside. You know, and okay, a lot so of guys do Michael, get intimidated okay. by that fact. So we talk about that word intimidate. So, Michael, I need from you as a lawyer, as a businessman looking at Taryn, what would you say to men? How do we elevate and evolve a little bit out of the Stone Age? You know, one of the things that she talks about in her book is vulnerability, you know, and as men, as type A, you know, guys and tough guys. And uh, for me, um, uh, I've been, had a really difficult time in my life being vulnerable. Being able to tell her how I feel, being able to tell your woman that you're, you know, you might be intimidated by a certain thing, you might be concerned about something. You know, we've talked about it. I'm like, look, when you go, when you go places, I'm like, I'm a little freaked out about it. You know, I just, I don't know why, but I don't know why, and I didn't know why, right? Yeah. And then when we talked about it, we had communication, and I wasn't afraid to tell her that, hey, I'm a little nervous about you being somewhere and I'm not there, or I'm a little bit nervous about how people would look at you, or I'm a little bit nervous about the things that might people might say to you. And so we talked about it and we had communication about how, how I felt and I was really vulnerable, you know? Um, and, and she just talked through it with me and reassured me. In fact, she said to me, Mike, if you need reassurance every single day, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm like, well, doesn't that, doesn't that mean that I'm insecure? She's like, well, well, who says that? Why, why, does it, why does it have to be insecurity? I love you, and I want you to know that, and I'm here for you. So the answer to your question, honestly, and I think for the men that are listening, is to be able to communicate with your woman, to be able to be vulnerable with your woman, to be able to not worry about how they might see it and maybe potentially use it against you. We talked a lot about that, right? A lot of women or a lot of even men think that they're going to say something to their woman, they're going to be extremely vulnerable, and then they're going to use it against them. And I had to kind of learn from her that that's not the case. In fact, if you listen to some of her speeches, she said, look, we can't do that as a couple. We can't do that, uh, you know, as partners. We need to be able to communicate with each other, talk to each other, and move forward. And so for me, um, it's just been an amazing journey. It's only been a couple months. It's crazy. You know, I know you talk, you know, with Joshua, you know, you talk about how you would wish you had met when you were younger, right? I'm 48. She's 44. Sorry, we're not supposed to do that stuff. But, but. Um, I'm glad we met at this stage in our life 
Because if I was 20, I probably would have taken it for granted. Well, I, you know, I'm going to share something with you, and that's a, probably the most vulnerable conversation I've ever had with Mike. But I'll show you a picture, Taryn. This is my, my, my man. Can you see him? And I had that I showed her, by the way. I had, well, but, and the guys on the radio can't see this, but Josh was, a, you know, a top fitness competitor and a fashion model and a former Chippendale, and he's 17 years younger. And I will tell you the exact same thing, Michael, that you'd said, but I'll, I'll give you what happened for us. And this doesn't happen for everyone. It happens for each individual. He has shown me that his sense of loyalty is one of his top three core values that is undeniable. He will say in the other sentence, I said, what kind he's like, I'm like, you're her, her, you probably, you're that girl's type. He's like, honey, I'm everyone's type. And I'm like, I get that. He said, but I don't want anyone but you. And the way he says that, I don't even think twice about it. And I think, you know what, Mike, when you really own that, the nicest thing in the world is to know that I am just so incredibly loved. Oh God, are we out to the one minute mark? Oh my God, guys, we're out of time. This is crazy. We can't be out of time. No, no, no. Say it ain't so. All right. Um, was that seriously what I'm looking at that we have to leave our show? Oh my goodness. Um, last you final word. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm getting off camera. You guys wrap it up. Final 30 seconds, Miss Taryn. Anything you want to say, go. Oh goodness. Um, you know, if I take it back to where we started at the beginning, Forbes, which is really about resilience, there's this sense that resilience is something that we go find outside of ourselves. We go out in the world, we find it, and we we sort of bring it back, right? And what I've learned in my experience in the last 20 years is that resilience is not something that we go out to find. Okay, so hang on. It's gotta, something. Uh, wait, we're a live show. So where do we find your book so we can finish what you're thinking? Where do we go for you? Mm, yeah. So the five practices, you know, number five of highly resilient people, you can find that on Amazon or if you go to doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, Taryn Marie book, you can grab it there and you will find all of that on our site i literally am totally out of time i've had such a blast we're gonna to have to have dinner that's what we're gonna do and maybe we'll let you in Can't on some of that guys you're listening to the forbes factor health wealth and happiness this has been an extraordinary show as always as expected and i will see you again next week right here same time same place bye-bye be well thank you for making the forbes factor an important part of your week be sure to join Forbes Riley again next Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you again soon.